All right, Ephesians chapter 4. Hopefully we can add that song to our list of how we worship the Lord. Beautiful song. Ephesians 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We have been learning about how to walk in the riches of God's grace. And Paul has been teaching us how to live like those who have the awesome riches of being in Christ. We learned about in the first three chapters of Ephesians. We've been learning how to live a worthy Christian life. First way we do that is in verse 2. It's by having the mind of Christ. We walk with all lowliness and meekness and with long-suffering for bearing one another in love. The second way that we live a worthy Christian life is by approaching our church life correctly. We finished that up last Sunday. And this morning, beginning in verse 17, we're going to look at the third way that we live a worthy Christian life, and it's by embracing an entirely new way of approaching how we live. So chapter 4, we begin in verse 17. Paul says, this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ." Paul starts off by reminding us of the self-life of being outside of Christ. He says, this I say, therefore, I'm declaring this to you for a reason. The reason is all the way back in verse 1. Therefore, because of all that God's done for us, all the riches He's given to us, we need to walk worthy of that. And so since we're on the topic, Paul says, of walking worthy, of conducting ourselves in a way that's worthy of our position of being in Christ, he says, I need to tell you something else. He says, I testify in the Lord. The word testify means to insist, to emphatically state an opinion or a desire. He says, I insist that you henceforth do not walk as other Gentiles. Now, Paul has that little phrase that I just left out in there. I insist, he says, in the Lord. In other words, Paul gives this serious call to action in light of the fact that he is also someone who is in Christ. Paul's not insisting we do something because he's better than us, or he is insisting that we do something because he too has experienced the riches of God's grace. He too has experienced the redemption, the forgiveness, the election, all the things that we learned about in those first three chapters. He's insisting we respond to God's grace in a worthy way because he's responded to God's grace in a worthy way. So what is Paul insisting that we do? Well, first off, he says that you Henceforth, you no longer walk. The word walk means to behave. You no longer behave. You no longer conduct yourself like other Gentiles conduct themselves, like the rest of the unbelievers behave. In other words, there is a difference in the way someone who is in Christ behaves and the way someone who isn't in Christ behaves. There's a difference. And Paul explains that difference next. He says, those who are not in Christ, he says, they behave in the vanity of their mind. The word vanity means emptiness, futility, pointlessness, uselessness. The word mind there refers to their way of thinking and their attitude. Their attitude, their way of thinking is empty, futile, pointless, and useless. Now, Paul is not saying that every unbeliever is empty-headed or unintelligent. 
What he is saying is that their way of thinking and attitude towards life is futile. It's pointless. That was also the conclusion that the wisest man in the world came to when he tried to do life apart from God. The book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon's experiment of backsliding. I'm going to see what it's like to do things my way. I know as much as any man out there, I'm the wisest man in the world. I'm going to do life on my own for a bit. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, he says this, Ecclesiastes 1, verses 12 through 18. Ecclesiastes 1, 12, Solomon says, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sore travail has God given to the sons of men to be exercised therewith. In other words, if this is how you're going to do life, there's sore travail waiting for you. He goes, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. That which is crooked cannot be made straight. That which is lacking cannot be numbered. I communed with my own heart, saying, Lo, I am come to a great estate. I have got more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. I am in this high position. I have wealth unimaginable, position unimaginable, and wisdom greater than anyone that's come before me. I'm going to commune with my own heart. Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And so I, he says, I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is vexation of spirit. For in much wisdom is much grief. And he that increases knowledge increases sorrow. That's not exactly a ringing endorsement for doing life on your own terms. Doing life apart from God. Paul says, when a person doesn't know the Lord, they may be wonderfully intelligent or creative or even inspiring, but it is impossible for their way of thinking to please God. Impossible. Why? Verse 18. Having, this is why they, they live life, their way of thinking is futile. He says, because their understanding is darkened because it's being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that's in them because of the blindness of their heart. We've got four stages there that he describes of why their thinking, their way of thinking, their way of approaching life is futile. He starts off by saying their understanding is darkened. The word understanding here refers to the faculty of moral reflection. This word darkened, the only other time this word is used this way in the New Testament, a root of it's used in other places, but the only way it's used this way is to refer to what happened when smoke belched out of the abyss in Revelation 9 verse 2. When smoke belched out of the abyss in Revelation 9 verse 2, it didn't eradicate the sun. The sun was still there, but it says it blocked the sun. See, what happens is even when a unbeliever has morally good thoughts on life or morally good thoughts on behavior, they are always polluted, those thoughts, in some way that makes even their right thoughts displease the Lord. Very commonly what you hear said, listen, you should, you should dedicate your life to charity or you should make sure you do charity because it'll make you feel better. Good thing, but tainted, darkened, there is always a taint on those thoughts. And this word is in the perfect tense, which means they are never not this way. Now, why is this an unbeliever's continual condition? Well, because they're not in Christ. He explains their understanding is darkened because they're 
being alienated from the life of God. Being there as a present participle means they presently exist as having been completely estranged from the spiritual life that only comes from God. They're not in contact or connection to that spiritual life that only God can give. And so that happens through the ignorance that is in them. Because they don't have access to the spiritual life that only comes from God, they are missing key important information that's necessary to think in a way that pleases God. Now, why aren't they in Christ? The end of the verse explains. Because something they've decided in their heart affects who they are and everything they think about. He says, all of this is because of the blindness of their heart. The word blindness is probably not a good translation there. The word here, it does not refer to something that you can't control. It refers to something that you decide. It means a stubborn unwillingness to learn, a closed mind, a callous hardening of the heart. We know from the Scriptures that God's Spirit is constantly bringing conviction into an unbeliever's life. Jesus taught us that in the book of John. He is showing them how they fall short of God's glory and that they are in need of a Savior. He's showing them that judgment is coming and that the only way to escape that judgment is to turn away from our sin and to turn toward Jesus. But an unbeliever remains an unbeliever despite the work of God's Spirit because they harden their heart to the work of God's Spirit. They refuse to listen to God's Spirit, shutting, closing their mind to His truths, deciding to trust in themselves instead. Now, that allows us to work backwards in this verse. Because of that choice to resist the work that God's trying to do to reveal truth to them, that choice results then in ignorance, a lack of information necessary to make decisions that please God. Not having the information necessary to make decisions that pleases God results in no access to spiritual life. And no access to spiritual life results in a polluted moral thought process which results in a futile way of thinking. And when a person's moral reflections are always polluted and their thought process cannot please God, it's going to affect how they behave. And so Paul in verse 19 explains, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over unto lasciviousness, number one, and number two, to work all uncleanness with greediness. Now you say, well, that doesn't describe every believer I know. They're not all that bad. Let's dig into this and explain what it means. The phrase being past feeling here, it means having lost the feeling of shame and embarrassment. In other words, an unbeliever doesn't behave in a way that first asks the question, what does God think about what I'm about to do? They don't. I didn't when I wasn't saved. I didn't sit there and go, I wonder what God thinks about this. None of that was in my mind. They don't care about that. And so instead of giving their lives to please God, they give their lives to please themselves. They give themselves over unto lasciviousness and to work uncleanness. Now, the phrase give themselves over into, unto, it indicates a complete surrender. This is the guiding point of their life. Lasciviousness, it means behavior that lacks any moral restraint. In other words, there's no external moral restraint on my life. When I'm not a believer, I don't have anything externally that is saying, don't do this, Will. Everything that I would say, I'm going to do this or I'm not going to do this, is internal. It's all internal. 
even the things that are external to me, like a work code or a family code of how we do things, I'm still internalized because I said, well, I'll be okay with that. It's not the standard of God. And so therefore, there's no moral restraint. And secondly, they surrender themselves to work all uncleanness, to engage in the business of moral wrongness. That's what uncleanness means, that which is morally wrong. And they do so, the the motive for that is with greediness. And again, that sounds like, well, I know people who are not greedy. They're very giving, even though they're not believers. The word greedy here just simply means a strong desire to acquire more. In other words, everything is about self. One of the most common phrases that I've heard for the last 20 years about people who make life decisions, and I hope you don't say this as a Christian, well, I have to do what's best for me. Whether it's a work decision, a family decision, a life, whatever it is, well, I have to do what's best for me. I need to look out for myself. I need to take care of myself. I need to look out for myself first. Now, that's the exact opposite of what Jesus taught us, right? Jesus said, if any man wants to be my disciple, what are we supposed to do with self? Deny it, not put it first. It's the exact opposite mindset. So when we look here, we're not just describing like murderers and and whatever. What we're describing here is a life totally surrendered to self. And a life totally surrendered to self doesn't care what God thinks. I'm going to conduct my life based on what I think is good and right. I'm going to conduct my life based on what I think will get me what I think is best for me. That's what Paul's describing here. This self-life, this life apart from Christ is one that lacks moral restraint. It's one that ends up in the business of moral wrongness. Now, that's the life we used to live before we were in Christ. That's how I lived before I knew Jesus. But Jesus taught us something very different than that way of life. Verse 20, Paul says, but you have not so learned Christ. If so be, you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. If you're in Christ, your moral reflections are no longer polluted. You have access to the spiritual life that comes from the creator of the universe. Jesus has taught you and me a different way to think and a different way to live. And so, we didn't learn this from Him. We learned something different from Him. Now, the word learned here, it means to be instructed, to be taught, or to come to understand. And Paul says that you did. The phrase, if so be, it, it's, in, it's a first-class conditional clause, which means it could be translated since. It's one that expects it to be the truth. His statement is, if-then statement is expected to be the conditions to be fulfilled. So, since you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. He's saying, you didn't learn this. I know you didn't learn this because you, you received the truth that's in Christ. They didn't just learn about Jesus. They weren't just people saying, oh yeah, Jesus is a good guy. I kind of want to emulate him a little bit. No. They had embraced Jesus. The phrase that you've been taught by him, it means you've been taught in fellowship with him. They had embraced Jesus. They had repented of their sins. They were in fellowship with Jesus. And the living Son of God that they were in fellowship with had called them out from the self-life to follow Him. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Now, the idea that I can know what's best when I ignore the one who knows everything is a lie. 
you cannot know what's best if you don't have all information. The self-life is a lie. And it, tell, it, it tells you, no, it's not a lie. No, this will work out good this time. Right? Like when you tell the lie, but then you got to tell another lie to protect the first lie. And then you got to tell a lie to protect the lie that you lied about to protect the first lie. And each time it's going, no, 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 this will work. And then what happens? At some point, it all comes crashing down. It's a lie because you don't have all the information. The self-life is a lie. Jesus, on the other hand, gave us reality. The self-life is a fantasy life. Jesus gave us truth, reality. And so when we open God's Word and we read about Jesus or someone teaches us about Jesus, the person we see in Jesus is radically different than what is described in verses 17 through 19, right? Like that doesn't describe Jesus. None of us would read verses 17 through 19 and go, oh yeah, that reminds me of Jesus. Nothing like Jesus. That's because Jesus thought and he lived differently. You know, Solomon, at the end of his exploration into the self-life, he gave an answer to the futility he had found in living life on his own terms. At the end of Ecclesiastes, in chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, Solomon said this. He said, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Let me tell you what I learned through this nonsense I tried. He says in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. He says, I'm not the determining factor in those, that question, if something's good or evil, if it's right or wrong, if it's best or not best for me. God is the one. I need to reverence Him. I need to be obedient to His commands, what He's revealed, because He has all the information. And every person who is in Christ has come to the same conclusion. My way was wrong. It separated me from God. And so I turned away from trusting in my own righteousness, and I placed all my hope in Christ's work on the cross to make me righteous. I turned away from my way, and I chose to follow Jesus, right? That's why we're here today. Therefore, now that I'm in Christ, what God thinks about my behavior does matter to me now. I don't want to behave in a way that lacks moral restraint. I don't want to be in the business of moral wrongness. I don't want to live surrendered to self anymore. I want to live a life that's surrendered to God instead. And thus, Paul exhorts us to leave behind the self-life and to embrace Jesus' truth. He says in verse 22, that you put off. The word that there, this is the truth that Jesus taught us. You have not so learned Christ Well, what did we learn from Christ? That you, number one, put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust. Number two, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And then number three, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Paul now exhorts us, insists that we embrace our new life in Christ now that we're saved. The truth that Jesus taught us, number one, is that we would put off concerning the former conduct, the old man. The word put off, it means to stop doing what one was accustomed to doing. Before I was a Christian, I had a a way of doing and way of acting. 
Now I need to put that off. That former way of life. That's what former conversation means. My former way of life. The old man. Now we read this and you might think, hey, I saw that phrase, the old man, in Romans 6 in our scripture reading too. What's Paul got against older guys? The word here doesn't mean old in the sense of age per se. It means old in the sense of something being worn out, something being that's useless or ruined. I, most of you guys probably have this, right? You go out to do yard work, you got your special yard clothes, right? You got clothes you don't use for anything else. You got the shoes that they really don't fit great anymore, but you don't mind wrecking them. You got the shirt that you would never wear out, but you'll do yard work in it. The shorts that got some holes here and there, but you'll use them because, well, I'm doing yard work. Well, every once in a while, someone in my home determines that those things have no longer served their purpose or no longer can serve a purpose. I won't declare who it is. I'll give you a hint, though. It's none of my kids. And I'll come and I go, I'll say, hey, where's, where's this shirt? I got to go do some, some of this, you know, whatever. Someone decided it was old. <laughs> Too old to continue because it was not serving its purpose anymore. Paul uses this phrase in the same way to refer to our life before Christ. When we live on our own terms rather than live to please the Lord. He says, it's got to put it away. It's not, it's not functional anymore. It's not worth it. It's ruined life. We have that phrase, if any man be in Christ, is a new creation, all things have passed away, all things have become new. Beautiful verse. And we use it so often to refer to the fact that, oh man, my, my, all my past is gone, all my sins are forgiven. That's true, that's biblical, but that's not what that verse is talking about. Turn over to 2 Corinthians 5 with me and get the context of the statement. Paul's referring to how we live now. He explains that in the verses that precede it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, just a few turns to the left from Ephesians, he says in verse 14, for the love of Christ constrains us. Why do we do what we do? Because of the amazing love that God has shown to us, the amazing work God has done in our life, all that he's done for us. It constrains us because we thus judge, because we've made this conclusion that if one died for all, then we're all dead. In other words, if Jesus died for everybody, then it means everybody was lost, right? None of us could do it on our own. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. In other words, if we were all dead, well, now that we've been given life, we've been given life through Christ and all he's done for us, well, then because of that, we should no longer live like we're dead. We should henceforth no longer live to ourselves. We should live for him who died for us and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth, from now on, moving forward, know we no man after the flesh. All of our relationships are different now. Like we don't look at somebody and treat them how we used to because we're not the same. We don't look at them and we don't say, oh, they're they're this person, so I got to make sure I do this so I can get ahead. We don't do that anymore. We don't know them after the flesh. Though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth we don't know him. We know him no more. We don't know him that way any longer. Christ is the top. We live life surrendered to him. Therefore, in light of all that truth, he says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. What are the old things? It's the old man. It's the old life. 
the old flesh life. That's all passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The life we now live, it's a, now we're living unto God. We're living to Jesus. We're surrendered to Him, not to self anymore. That's what that verse is about. Why would we do that? Because the old man, Paul tells us in verse 22, is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. The, the word here, corrupt, it means it's a, it's a life that's being progressively ruined. It's just growing worse as time goes on. I don't know about you, but I don't want that to be the definition of my life. Do you? Yeah, I'm, I'm shooting for progressive ruin in my life. That's my goal today. No, I mean, nobody wants that, right? So we got to put off the old man because that's what's happening with the old man. It's corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. What was ruining our formal way of life? The deceitful lusts, the evil cravings of deceit. Paul speaks of deception like it's a person who craves all the wrong things. That's a good description of the self-life, how I lived before I was in Christ. I need to choose to stop doing life like that. I need to put off like worn out, ruined clothing that isn't getting the job done anymore. Put it off. So I ask you this morning, have you made that decision yet? Have you put off the old man, the old way of life? You need to, because it's what Jesus teaches us to do. Now, Jesus didn't just teach us to put off something. He taught us to replace our old way of thinking with a new way of thinking. Verse 23, we embrace our new life in Christ, number one, by deciding to put off the old man. Number two, by deciding to let God give us a new way of thinking. And be renewed. It's, it's something that happens to you that we participate in. Be renewed. It means to cause something to become new and different with the implication that the new thing is better. It's superior. Jesus offers us something way better than the self-life mindset. He offers us a new mindset. And so we need to be renewed in the spirit, the attitude of our way of thinking. It's not that we were unintelligent before Christ and now we're smart. Your IQ doesn't change once you're in Christ. The difference is our attitude in our approach to decision-making. Now, to be renewed in the spirit of my mind means I'm choosing to invest time into learning what God says, what God is like, and what God wants. And when I learn what God says, what God is like, and what God wants, those things change the way I see the world. They change the way I process information. They change the way I make decisions. And where do we learn what God says, what God is like, and what God wants? Right here. Right here. And so I ask you this morning, have you made the decision to invest time into God's Word? That you're here this morning shows that you've made that decision to some degree. But are you reading and studying your Bible throughout the week? Have you made a commitment to renewing your mind? Paul, when he finishes his great 11 chapters of Romans, giving us all the theology of salvation, he says, now, therefore, brethren, I beseech you, I beg you, I plead with you, because of all the mercy God's shown to you. You know, we sang that song, oh, the wonder, the beauty, the mercy, all that God's shown to us. This concept should just blow us away to the point that we just say, Lord, I give you everything. And that's what Paul says we should do. I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present your body a living sacrifice. And then secondly, he says, that you be not conformed to this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind, getting a new way of thinking. Have you made a commitment to renewing your mind?
Well, we're to embrace our new life in Christ by deciding to put off the old man. Number two, deciding to let God give us a new way of thinking. And thirdly, Jesus also taught us to replace our old behavior with new behavior. Verse 24, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness, or more literally, in righteousness and holiness, which is true, which is reality. It's what we need. Put on means to dress yourself. We need to put off the old man like taking off old, worn-out clothes. We need to put on the new man. What's the new man here? Well, it's not new in the sense of I need to become a, like a new existence. I need to cease to be me and become somebody else, a whole different human being. That's not the point. It's something that's new as opposed to something that's worn out. It refers to something of better quality, a better way of living than being progressively ruined because I live for self. In other words, the new man that I need to put on is a way of life that patterns itself after God. That you put on the new man which after God is created. The phrase after God, which which means it's created according to what God is like. We were recreated to be like Jesus. If you're in Christ, you're born again. We did not recreate ourselves. But God didn't give us this new life so we could continue living the self-life. We were recreated by him to be like him. And how are we like him? In righteousness and in holiness. I know you say, what does that mean? It's really simple. Righteousness is the right way of interacting with others. Holiness is the right way of interacting with God. He created us, recreated us, so that we would be like Jesus and that we do what's right towards others. We do what God requires in how we treat others and that we imitate God's character, that we treat God the right way. Because that's what true life is about. When we look at Jesus, we see a man who lived in righteousness and holiness, don't we? He treated others the way God wants us to, and he interacted with the Lord the way the Lord wants us to. Jesus taught us this truth by his words and by his example. Guys, we have been raised to the position of an adopted son. We are co-heirs with Jesus. (laughs) A worthy life is one that embraces this truth. It's one that imitates Jesus. And so I ask another question this morning. Have you made the decision to put on this better way of living? Have you chosen to pursue imitating Jesus for the rest of your days? Now, if you have never been born again, Trying to imitate Jesus all on your own will not work. There are many who say, well, I like Jesus. I like a lot of the things Jesus did. I'm going to try to live life like that. That won't work. That's tainted because there's still the idea there that rejects, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. So I like Jesus. I want to imitate some of the things he did, but I don't accept the idea that he's the only way to heaven, or I don't accept the idea that I need his death on the cross for my sins. Well, All those ideas of how you're going to try to imitate Jesus are going to be tainted because you reject the things Jesus said. You need to be born again. What does it mean to be born again? Well, the Bible tells us that we're dead in trespasses and sins. That all of us have sinned and fall short of God's glory. What does that mean, that we fall short of God's glory? It means that God has a standard, what he calls a good person. When I share the gospel with people, I will frequently ask them a question. I will say, hey, I said, you know, do you think you're a good person? And inevitably, most people will say yes. 
And I said, well, do you mind if we just put that to the test? Just a few questions. Sure. Say, have you ever told a lie? <laughs> yeah, everybody lies. Okay, what does that make you? A sinner. No, 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 not, not a sinner. What does it make you specifically? What do you mean? Well, if I told you that you fulfilled all the requirements, you did all the paperwork to qualify for a home, and now you own the home, what would you be called? A homeowner. If you tell lies by your own admission, you just said you do, what does that make you? The whole glib attitude changes at that point because it's hard to say those next words. I guess I'm a liar. Yes. Go on to the next one. Have you ever stolen anything regardless of its value? Yeah. What does that make you? Now they get it. Thief. Jesus said, if you look upon a woman or a man with lust in your heart, you commit adultery with her in your heart. Have you ever done that? Yes. What does that make you? Adulterer. Now, I didn't call you a lying, thieving, adulterer, but you've admitted to being a lying, thieving, adulterer at heart. Do you still think you're a good person? Because I can go to the other seven commandments if you're not convinced yet. You're 0 for 3 so far. And I picked the, I picked the easy ones. Have you always honored your mother and father? Have you always put God first? Have you ever coveted anything anybody else had? Have you ever had hatred in your heart towards someone? Guys, when we lay it out, we're 0 for 10, right? All of us. Like, none of us. Like, and, and even if you're like 1 for 10, that's not close to a passing grade. And Jesus, his standard is 100%. So, the good news is this. And even though you're not a good person, God loves you. And he doesn't want you to perish. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's what he wants to do for you. But you have to repent. You have to stop thinking you're a good person. You have to come to the Lord, confess your need for a savior, turn from your sin and decide to follow him. And the Bible says he'll make you born again. He'll give you new life. If you've not done that, you need to do that. Now, if you're born again, what we've studied today is the right and proper way to approach life. It's a worthy way to do life when we consider all the riches of God's grace. Over the next few weeks, this is just the general idea. Put off the old man, be renewed in your mind, put on the new man general idea. But over the next few weeks, we're going to get into some very specific ways of how we're supposed to live differently now that we're in Christ. And so if you've not made the decision to put off the old man and to put on the new man, if you've not made the decision to regularly learn about Jesus from God's Word, the rest of Ephesians in this section, the next, this rest of this chapter and the beginning of chapter 5 is going to be very difficult to listen to and going to be even more difficult to apply. Because when we talk about issues like lying and theft and evil forms of communication and wrong attitudes in our heart and sexual sin and laziness and pride, you're going to get irritated that Paul's telling you to change. You're going to get irritated by that. You're going to hear that and you go, yeah, but you don't understand my marriage. You don't understand my work environment. You don't understand my family. You don't understand my neighbors. You're going to get irritated when he's telling you, this is not okay. This is where you need to be. Or you're going to become frustrated because you're not changing. My hope is that when we started chapter 4, you already made the decision to put off the old man to put on the new man. But if you haven't yet, then today is the day. (laughs) 
because God has a lot for us over the next two chapters, and these are things that will change our lives for the better. And we don't want to go into married life and how we do worthy married life, worthy family life, if we don't even understand just how to conduct ourselves as Christians. So, let's be those who benefit from what we're about to learn. Amen? Let's be those who embrace it. I don't deserve to be where I'm at right here, teaching the Bible. Paul the Apostle, he goes, I'm insisting this in the Lord. Paul never forgot who he was. He never forgot what Jesus saved him from. And so, when we consider all these things, and we recognize that it's our worthy response, it's because of all we've been rescued from, and all the goodness God has shown to us that we do not deserve. It's why that song is so powerful, why we're in awe of him, because we were a mess. And he saved us, washed us off, he set us up in this glorious position and said, that's my kid, that's my son, that's my daughter. You're all fair, my love, the Song of Solomon says, there is no spot in you. That's how Jesus sees us. Let's commit ourselves today, putting off the old man, put on the new man, to be renewed in the spirit of our mind, and we might walk worthy of all these titles we've been given. Amen? Let's all stand. Oh, Lord, the wonder and the beauty of your love, the depth of the mercy, all that you've done. We contemplate it, Lord. It's beyond, beyond our ability to realize just how good you've been. And so with Paul, we pray that you would help us to comprehend, to be able to apprehend and wield, Lord, your love, even though it's impossible to fully understand. We thank you for your goodness and grace, the riches you've given to us in Christ. And Lord, today we choose to put off the old man, to leave behind the self-life, to stop living that way. We choose to be renewed in the spirit of our mind, Lord, to rededicate ourselves to being in the word, to learning about you, what pleases you, what you're like. We want you to be involved in our decision-making, Lord, even when it's hard, even when it hurts, Lord, because of the wrongs being done to us. We want to be those who are different. We want to be like you. So we choose to put on the new man, Lord, which is created after you, to be like you. Lord, for every person who's in their heart making that decision, that commitment this morning, Lord, would you enable them to do so? You promised us in your word that sin won't have dominion over us because we're not under the law anymore. We're under grace. And so as they're yielding their life to you, will you come alongside that and equip them? Fill them with your spirit that they might live it out. And then, Lord, over the next few weeks, please bless us. Teach us, Lord, truths of how to be different than that old self-life, Lord. The very specific ways that we can be more like you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.